0: Now, you're probably very tired of all the Christmas commercials and even some of the Christmas TV shows or movies. I'm sure that's true of some of you. And um, one thing that you see in all of the commercials and all of the movies and all the TV shows around this time of year is everybody just looks perfectly happy, right? Right? They're always just smiling their biggest smiles, and life is just great. There's no problems in their lives. You know, Christmas time is truly for them this magical time where reality apparently is suspended because nothing bad happens to them, and everything just works out, and it's just, you know, beautiful and grand and lovely, and that's in no way reality, right? Uh, and, as great as Christmas is, I mean, I love Christmas time. absolutely love it. it. It is one of my favorite times of the year and and it is beautiful and it is full of light and hope and joy and, and all that is true. But what is also true is that for many, many people, Christmas time is not the most wonderful time of the year it 's not the happiest season of all. many times christmas and holidays in general are a glaring reminder of what you've lost. Many times Christmas time can be one of the darkest times of the year for people because of what they um, are missing, the the people they're missing, you know, in their lives, in their home, in their celebrations, or maybe because of uh, circumstances that they're currently going through. Um, You know, I, I know many of you have had a rough year Many of you have had a rough month, a rough week, and Christmas time sometimes can be a very, very hard time, uh, full of emotion and full of pain and full of trial and suffering. Suffering is just as much a part of the Christmas season for many people as is the laughter and the happiness and the joy. And suffering is actually at the very center of the Christmas story, at the very heart of the Christmas narrative. We don't often focus on that aspect, but it's an aspect that remains. It's very much part of what makes Christmas, Christmas. And in Matthew chapter 2, we see a glimpse of that. Uh, I want to invite you to look at that passage with me Uh, As I read it, Matthew 2, and I'm going to start at verse 13, and what happens before verse 13, a little bit of the context, is that uh, the baby Jesus has already been born, probably two, maybe three years old now, and wise men from the east have journeyed because they saw two years prior the announcement of His coming. They saw the star, the supernatural sign in the heavens of the coming King, and most likely they made preparation as soon as they saw it and started to put things together and realize what this omen was, they probably started their journey then, but it took them that long to get to where Jesus was born. And they come and they go right to the place that they would expect, knew all about this and was already ready to receive this new king. They went to the seat of power. They went right into Jerusalem. They went right up to Herod and said, hey, where's the new king? I know you're, you're the king right now, but where's this new king that we've, we've seen the sign about? And the Bible tells us that Herod was troubled, greatly troubled, distressed at this news, and all Jerusalem with him, all of his counselors, and all of the people that were part of his group, they were all upset and worried and anxious. Now, what does all this mean? What's happening? And finally, the wise men come, and they find Jesus, and Before they see him, Herod says, tell you what, when you go and see him, I want you to come back to me, tell me exactly where he is, tell me exactly who he is, so that I can go and worship him too. Not. Obviously that was not his desire. His desire was to stamp out this threat that he perceived to his power, his control. And when the wise men see the new king, and they worship him, they honor him, and they give him their gifts of honor, and their gifts of sacrifice to him, the Lord reveals to them they need to go somewhere else to get back home. They need to not go back Herod's way, they need to not go back to him, because he's going to try to kill them, kill, kill baby Jesus. And, and so they, he, they finally make their way back to their land, and Herod realizes something bad is going to happen, Uh, to him because his plan is, is unraveling. They, they didn't follow what he asked them to do. And so that's all that's going on. So now the, the wise men are making their way back. They're probably on their way back to their home. And while they're journeying back, we pick up with Joseph, who comes back on the scene again. And here's what verse 13 tells us After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet... Might be fulfilled out of Egypt I called my son and that's from the prophet Hosea and that's in Hosea eleven one where that announcement is given. Verse sixteen says this. Then Herod when he realized he had been outwitted by the wise men, I always love the play on words there. Outwitted by the wise men, um, he he wasn't exactly happy. He wasn't thrilled at that. He didn't say, "Oh well, tough day. Guess I'll take this loss." No, look what it says. He flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. So he, he wasn't exactly a fool and he discerned from talking to the wise men about when they saw the star and, and how long it took them to come and compared with some other writings and the prophecies and all of that that he had at his disposal and he figured out Okay, this child, he's probably not a baby anymore. He's probably about two. And so he didn't, he didn't distinguish at all. He just went crazy, and it's the equivalent of a modern-day carpet bomb. I mean, he just said, I just want them all gone. I want you to go into Bethlehem and around the, the area there, all the little communities, all the side streets, where you find out wherever there are boys that are about two, two-and-a-half years old, and I don't care who they are, I don't care who they belong to, I want you to wipe them out. That was the orders he gave to his soldiers. Just get rid of them. Let's just, let's just get rid of all of them so that if there's any one that could possibly be this coming king, this promised one, he'll be wiped out along with all the others. Verse 17. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. Go back home, because those who intended to kill the child are dead." This is part of the Christmas story that you don't usually see in Christmas plays and Christmas programs, right? You don't usually see that portrayed. you kind going to skip over that part. And often we skip over this in our reading, in our sitting around as family, in our reading of the Christmas story and the Christmas narrative. Why? Because it's hard. It's hard to hear what happened. It's hard to imagine that. I mean, it's full of suffering. It's full of pain. It's full of agony and anguish. But nevertheless, that's what happened. That's the reality surrounding Christmas. As Jesus comes into our world and our experience, great suffering surrounded him. And even though he was spared by God's protection over him and he was taken away from this massacre, just think about all of those families that were affected. All really as a result of his coming. As a result of him being here and as a result of of Herod being jealous of, of, of his power and wanting to hold on to it, as people with power often are, the people with great power are greatly worried about losing that power most of the time. And Herod certainly was the same way. You can do a little bit of research and see that he was absolutely an egomaniac and paranoid and always fearful of losing his control, as many people like that were. Think about all those families that experienced this great loss and anguish right around the time of Jesus coming into our world. And before this, as Jesus comes... We know, most of us, I would say, know the situation surrounding Jesus' birth. We've read it many times, we've heard it many times, and we know he wasn't born into a comfortable environment. He wasn't born into uh, a cushy situation. I mean, he was born um, with, with very poor parents. He was born in a place that was reserved for animals, with animal smells and animal things going on, and he was born into a place where they usually eat, I mean... He was born into a situation that was already full of suffering. He wasn't born into what we would expect. He wasn't born into what he deserved. And so all around the coming of Jesus, all around Christmas, there is suffering. There's pain, there's loss, there's agony. And I know that many of you can relate to that. Sometimes Christmas time can be the hardest time because of what happens around it. And so from then on, your memory is full of what took place, what that suffering was. Sometimes it can be very, very difficult to find joy and to find hope. Suffering. Suffering, it's part of our reality. It's part of our life. It's part of our world. It's part of our experience, and it was part of the experience that Jesus himself had, And it's part of what many around him as a result of his coming experienced as well. And by no means did suffering end at the coming of Jesus at his birth or at his toddler years. Suffering was something that defined Jesus' entire experience. It defined his life. It surrounded him all through his life. Look at what Isaiah chapter 53 says about Jesus prophetically as as Isaiah was able to look ahead and see the coming Messiah, see the Savior coming. He writes this about him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, Isaiah 53 says this, He, speaking of Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on his own son, the iniquity of us all. So suffering is something that Jesus knew very well, something that he walked through, something that he experienced. Suffering surrounded him from the very beginning of of his coming into earth and becoming one of us, all the way through his life, culminating, of course, at the cross. But in all of the suffering surrounding Jesus, the suffering that defined him, the suffering that he walked through, the suffering that he experienced, the suffering that he was born into, the suffering surrounding his birth. In all of that, all the way through his life, even at the cross, there is a great truth that stands above it all. There's a a great principle that is overarching over all that we see in Jesus' life and surrounding him in all the suffering. In all of our suffering, we can draw strength from this truth. We've seen it over and over again through history and through the pages of Scripture. And we can see it in our own life if we're careful enough to look back and think objectively. And that's this. Suffering does not suspend God's sovereignty. Suffering does not suspend God's sovereignty. Even as these children were massacred because of the rage and evil of Herod, even as the parents and the family would have said, why is this happening? Those who were faithful to God, no doubt, would have called out to them, God, why did you do this? How could you have let this happen? I thought you were good. I thought you were in control. I thought you had a purpose and a plan. Where is that in all of this? Just as you probably have asked yourself a time or two. Just as those close to you have asked you, maybe, why is God doing this to me? Why has God allowed this to happen? And many times you don't even have an answer. In suffering, it's it's hard to hold on to God being sovereign. In suffering, it's hard to hold on to belief and to confidence that God is in fact good. And working good even in our bad circumstances, even in our suffering. It's hard to see that. But even in this early account of the suffering surrounding Jesus coming, the massacre of, of the children, we see that even that was something that God allowed to happen, that he, he ordained to happen, even though it was difficult and unimaginable in its scope and its suffering, because it was something that had been prophesied, and it was a fulfillment of prophecy from Jeremiah. It was something that was foretold. It was something that was now verified and fulfilled, and it was something that even in this, God would bring about his purpose. It was something that that didn't keep God from being in control, from being on the throne, and from working something good out of unimaginably bad circumstances. In Isaiah's prophecy of Jesus being one that was going to be despised and rejected by men, someone who was acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows that we just, we just read. In unimaginable suffering that Jesus experienced, even that didn't suspend God's sovereignty. Because he's someone that was able to then understand and experience what we understand and what we experience. He walked through what all of us walk through. And ultimately, all of that suffering led to the cross where he took all of our weakness, all of our mess, all of our sin, all that we find separates us from God, all of the ultimate suffering that none of us can even fathom was placed on Jesus. So all of Christ's suffering brought about our peace, our purpose, our comfort, our life, our hope. Suffering does not suspend God's sovereignty, and we see that most of all in the person of Jesus, and ultimately we see that on the cross that he went to. But in the midst of our suffering, it's very, very easy to doubt God's sovereignty. It's it's easy to wrongly attribute everything we're going through to Satan, you know, as if he were on the same level as God. And God just takes his hands off our situation and lets the enemy do whatever he wants, unchecked, unchallenged. And we may know that's not the case, but it's easy to feel that way when we're suffering. It's easy to say um, to ourselves and our mind and our thinking, this suffering that I'm going through must just be the enemy. It must be Satan because God would never allow me to go through that. There, there's entire theologies built on that premise. That God never allows or lets His own to go through suffering. That God never even causes situations to include suffering. That if you come to Christ, the rest of your experience, the rest of your life is nothing but just wonderful things. You know, there's entire philosophies and theologies built around that. Fallacy, though. It's all fallacy. Fallacy. Because Jesus never promised any of that. He never said, "In me, you'll have a pain, worry, conflict, stress, struggle, free, suffering, free life." It's not what He said. He said, "In me, you're going to suffer. In me, you're going to have hardship. In me, you will have trial and tribulation. In me you will no suffering. In me you will have persecution." That's what he promised. But he also promised, but even in that, you can take courage. Even in that, you can take heart. Even in that, you don't have to give up. Even in that, you don't have to be crushed and defeated. Even in all of the suffering that you will walk through, you don't have to despair. Because I've overcome the world. I've overcome it all. And my victory I give to you. And my peace I give to you, not as the world gives that's what Jesus promised, and that's what we can rest in and trust in, but in all of that, it's still easy, isn't it, emotionally, humanly, to still wonder, where is God's sovereignty in this suffering? This must just be the enemy. This has to just be Satan, and, and God just for some reason is, I guess, letting him do it, and, and I guess that means that... Uh, Man, Satan really is in control, and and your your mind can say things like that, and your emotions can say things like that, but all of that is a wrong way of looking at things. To be clear, though, just to be clear, Satan can and does initiate suffering as a weapon against us. It's part of his strategy against us. But when he does that, when that's true, we have to remember two very important things. One, what he does, what Satan does, still has to be allowed by God. Whatever Satan comes against us with, whatever he throws at us, whatever his strategy may be, and if it involves suffering, all of that still has to be allowed, permitted by God, by the the perfect Father that we have. Because God is a perfect father to all of his children. He is still the perfect, active, sovereign, constant sovereign over all of creation. And a great example of that is Job in the Old Testament. You see, a wonderful example of of the fact that, that Satan can, in fact, inflict harm and suffering, but if it happens, it's allowed by God, and that God is still reigning and ruling and controlling all of that that happens... And it's as if Satan's on a very short leash. We see that in Job. We see that other places. You've seen it in your own life. I've seen it in my life. And we need to remember that. That Satan is allowed to act, but the key there is allowed. He doesn't just have free reign. And God is still sovereign over our great enemy. And we have a much greater God over our great enemy first thing that we have to remember as we go through suffering and and uh, as we think about what role the enemy might have in that. Second thing that we need to remember is that Satan's strategy never stops God's strategy or his purpose from being carried out. Satan is a master schemer. He is a brilliant strategist. He really is. And he knows how to get to us. He knows our weakness, and he knows how to exploit our weakness. But Satan's strategy, as, as smart and cunning as it might be, never ever will be able to stop God's strategy or to stop or alter God's purpose from being carried out. Often what happens is God actually turns Satan's strategy connected to suffering and he turns it around on him, and he uses it against him, and he gains glory by it, and he uses it to accomplish his own perfect plan. I've seen that so many times in my life, and, and I hope you have too, I'm, I'm sure you have, where something bad comes your way, and, and it's hard, and it's discouraging, but right there in the midst of it, you see something start to change, and you see God at work, and you're able to look back and you're able to see, oh, what, like Joseph said, what was meant for me as evil, God turned around and used for good. Joseph's story is great for that reminder where he looks at his, his brothers at the end of the story, and he says, you know, you meant harm for me, and what you meant for evil, uh, I'm not disputing. I mean, it was evil. It was hard. It was bad. It was, it was terrible. It was full of suffering. But what you meant for evil, God turned around and used for good. And that is going to be the story and the song of every believer in Christ. Every one of us can say with full assurance to the enemy and about the enemy, and about all of his strategy, what you meant for evil, what you meant for my bad, I have a God that's greater than you, that takes all you throw at me, turns it around, uses it against you, and works it out for my good. And that will always be what we can rest in and be assured of. You see, God is not far from our suffering. And I'm not minimizing any of your suffering. I know some of you are going through tremendous suffering right now. I know many of you are are remembering the pain of your loss surrounding this time of year. And it's hard for you to be joyful. It's hard for you not to suffer again as you look at that empty seat around your table. As you look at that empty spot in your home. And you're reminded of the emptiness in your own heart. Or maybe some of you have experienced a a very recent bout of suffering. You've perhaps lost the source of income that you had and you were depending on. Maybe your, your family is going through a rough time. Maybe there's a diagnosis that has just knocked you off your feet. Maybe a marriage is barely clinging to life or has just recently expired. So I'm not minimizing any of the suffering you might be going through and experiencing. I know suffering can be very weighty. I know the pain of suffering. I know how real it can be. I know how it can eclipse everything else around you. I know that. And I understand that. But more than me or anybody else understanding... More, more than me or anybody else coming alongside you, as good as that might be, as encouraging as that might be, far more encouraging, far more hope-filled is the fact that God is not far from our suffering, that he is with us in it. And Jesus is proof of that. Jesus is our great Emmanuel. We've been talking all month long about how he is with us and in the ways he is with us. And and Matthew's song spoke to that. It was the culmination of of all that we have talked about throughout our series. With us in our waiting and with us in in our weakness. With us in all of our mess and all of our brokenness. He is the God who is with us in all things at all times. And that includes suffering. So what I challenge you to do and what I hope you will do and what I call you, all of us, to do is to see your Savior in your suffering. See your Savior in your suffering because He's there. He's right there in it with you. Romans chapter 8 is just such a powerful passage of Scripture where Paul reminds us, of the reality that is ours as believers, the truth that we can cling to, the, the change in status that we have from being a sinner apart from Christ to now being one in Christ with His righteousness, and He just gives us so many great statements of, of our reality in Christ. And then at the end of the passage, there's these powerful words. I love what He says, Romans 8. 35 says this, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, all of which we could put under the umbrella of suffering, right? I mean, that that just kind of is the category, all that could fit under suffering. You could sum it all up by saying, can suffering, as great as it might be, can it separate us from the love of Christ? Can it suspend the sovereignty of God over our lives? Can it alter the plan that God has for us? Can it alter his work in and through our lives? Can it separate us from the love of Christ our Savior, our Emmanuel? And the answer, verse 37 through verse 39, is starting in verse 37, is this. No! (laughs) It's a resounding, victorious, power-filled statement. No! In all these things, all those horrible things, all those examples of suffering and trial and distress and hardship and pain and anguish, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul says, and I hope you can say with him, yes, I too am persuaded. Amen. Paul, I'm with you. I am persuaded too that neither death nor life, and, and by life he means all the things that happen in life, all the suffering that takes place in life. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. All that unforeseen, unknown future that we all get scared about, that we all feel anxiety over, that can't keep us out of the love of Christ. That can't keep us out of the sovereignty of a perfect God. Neither things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. That covers it all will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Emmanuel. Isaiah, we looked at a passage about the suffering of Christ just a few moments ago to remind us that it wasn't just Christ as infant or Christ as toddler that experienced suffering, but all through his life and all the way up to the cross for our good, for our sake so that we wouldn't have to experience an eternity of suffering. But Isaiah also provides us a powerful passage of comfort, a promise of hope, a promise that we can be assured that Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us, includes suffering, and we're not alone in it. Isaiah 43.2, one of my favorite passages in Isaiah, says this, When, not if, but when you pass through the waters. This is God speaking, God's promise to His own. When you pass through the waters, because it will happen, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, and we all know what that's like. The pain of a fiery trial, the, the fire of suffering. We all know how that can feel. God says to you, when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. That's the promise that is yours if you're in Christ. That's the promise of Emmanuel. That God is with you in your suffering. He hasn't left you to it. He hasn't just let it happen for you. He's not off the throne. He's not taking his hand off the control. That he's right there with you. Think Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were in the fiery furnace. I mean, that's definitely an example of suffering, and it looked like that was it for them. But Nebuchadnezzar saw that there was someone with them like as a son of the gods, he said. And they came out and there was no smell of fire on them, not a hair of their head had been singed. And the God that they had hoped in and believed in and put faith in, he wasn't just above it all, he was right there with them in the fire. And the same is going to be true for you and me. No matter what suffering we may experience, no matter what suffering we we have to walk through, we can know without a doubt if you are in Christ, your Savior, your Emmanuel, is right there with you. And as Emmanuel, as Emmanuel, Jesus experienced suffering, is with us in our suffering, and uses our suffering. He experienced suffering all through his life, He's with us in our suffering and understands it, and He uses our suffering. And I just I want to share with you by no means is this an exhaustive list of how Jesus might use your suffering and how he, he will use suffering in our lives. But uh, I do find personally uh, that, this is, that these that I share with you are, at least in my life. Uh, what I draw the most comfort from, what I see the most readily on display, what I think are, are the most frequent examples of the way he uses suffering. And I hope that is encouraging to you. I hope that it will be a comfort and a hope to you. hope that you'll be able to draw strength and courage from this. I just want to share with you some ways that, that Jesus will use suffering in your life, in our lives. Jesus will use the darkness of our struggle and suffering, which admittedly is great from time to time. But He will use the darkness of our struggle and our suffering to highlight His glory even more. When you're in the darkness of of your suffering and of your struggle, just like in a dark room, a very tiny light makes all the difference. You can't deny it. it. Its light shines and permeates the darkness, even a small light. Think of it that way as you relate to your, your suffering that you might be experiencing or have experienced or the suffering of others. And what I find to be true, and I'm sure you have as well, is that, that Jesus uses that darkness and that despair to highlight or to, to shine a light on the, on the fact of His glory and His goodness and His faithfulness and His grace. And we tend to, to see it even more when we're low. You know, when, when you're at your lowest point, you don't really have anywhere else to look but up. And when you're at rock bottom, many times that's where you are prone to think about the rock, the rock of your salvation. And so in this great contrast, we, we can see Jesus' glory and, and His goodness on display even more because we're not maybe as distracted by other things as we were. You know, when things are going great, when things are just good as can be, the difficulty there is that we sometimes lose sight of God's glory. We lose sight of how important Jesus is to us. We, we don't maybe depend on Him as much. And when we're suffering and when we're full of the darkness of that suffering, we, we tend to see it more, we tend to notice it more. So He can use it in that way. I also find that Jesus will use the pain of our suffering to point us to his power. You know, and, and we talked about this uh, last week. Um, Paul heard from the Lord Jesus when he said, Jesus, please take this suffering from me. I, I, I can't stand this. I just can't take it anymore. This thorn in the flesh, please take it from me. Remove it from my life. Please, Jesus, I know you're able to. Please take it. Please take it. Please take it. Please take it. And the answer from Jesus was, no, I'm actually using this in your life because my strength is perfected in your weakness. My glory is on display even more, Paul, in your struggle. You're going to be able to see my glory in greater ways through this suffering. And Paul said, wow, when I I realized that, when I heard that and I started to understand it, I will now boast and glory all the more in my suffering, for when I am weak, he is strong. That's what Jesus will do for us. He will use the pain of, of your suffering to point you to his power, to get you to stop depending on your own. I also find that Jesus will use suffering to increase our joy and satisfaction in him alone and Him above all other things. Because we're so prone to try to find and to look for joy and satisfaction and all these other things, these lesser things, right, that never end up being the fulfillment that we need or are looking for. And sometimes, if we don't respond to His other nudgings and urgings and the work of His Spirit, if we don't respond to gentler things sometimes he will ordain suffering to come into your life and to come into your experience all for your good to get you to realize and to remember hey my joy ultimately is found in Jesus above all other things it's found in him my satisfaction my fulfillment it's found in Jesus above all other things and many times suffering is a device that he uses to get us to wake up to that fact. And I also find, and I think you probably would agree, I hope you will, that suffering often leads to greater sanctification. Sanctification is becoming more like Jesus. That's what sanctification means. It means being being set apart from yourself and from your flesh and set apart from the things of the world and set unto God and being more like His Son, be, being fashioned and formed into the image of, of His Son, which is His will for every believer. And suffering often leads to that, to greater sanctification. It's it's the process by which we grow. It's the the stuff in which we're sharpened and shapened and, and made more like Jesus. Suffering often leads to greater sanctification. Jesus wasn't a stranger to suffering by any means. And as his followers, we can learn from him. We can see how he handled that suffering. We can apply it to our situations and our circumstances. And then, last but not least, and this is something that I am so thankful for in my own life. I've, I've been the recipient of this. I've now been able to be a greater giver of this. And that's that our own suffering makes us more sensitive to the suffering of others. Our own suffering makes us more sensitive to the suffering of others. When you've gone through hardship, when you've gone through pain, when you've gone through agony, when you've gone through distress, when you've gone through pain, when you've gone through loss and brokenness, it should make you, especially as a believer in Christ, much more sensitive to others going through that same thing. It allows you to be able to come alongside someone and say, I understand. I get where you're coming from. I see where you are. And actually mean it. And actually be telling the truth. It's not just lip service at that point. You're able then to be the shoulder that those people need. You're able to then put into practice what God's word says a command for all of us believers to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're able to do that. Suffering enables us to do that. Suffering helps us to be able to do that. And we certainly see that ultimately in Jesus himself, where we can hear from him our our great Savior, our Emmanuel, our great high priest. We can hear from him as one who familiar with all of our ways, who is tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, we do not have a high priest who is without sympathy or empathy. And so ultimately in him, we we can see one who says, I've been there. I understand. I know what it is to suffer. I know the pain. I know the depth of it. But not only do I understand, not only do I know how it is, I am with you in it. I'm with you through it. I'm going to use it for your good. I'm going to use it for my glory. And I'm going to use you to go out and help others, to be encouragement to them, to draw them to me. May that be true of all of us. May all of us, in in all of our suffering, that we will go through many, many times throughout our life. May we understand, may we remember that Emmanuel is with us in it, may we see him in that suffering, and may we allow him to do his work in and through our lives, in and through that suffering, not despite it. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word, I thank you for your example of of Jesus, though being your son and being perfect in all ways and being all powerful and being so far above us though he is all of that he is still he is still the god who is with us in our suffering thank you that emmanuel means with us in all the different things that we experience and walk through in our lives we've seen throughout this series that that there is really nothing that Jesus as Emmanuel is not with us in or through. And we can draw tremendous hope and encouragement and strength from those facts if, if we will choose it. We can have your Spirit work in us in powerful, undeniable ways if we will let Him. We can experience encouragement, and hope, and life, and light, and joy in the midst of even the worst suffering because of Jesus, because he is with us in it. So help us, Father, please, to be with him, to allow him to do his work in and through our lives, in every situation, the good, the bad, the positive, the negative, negative. And in all things, help us to rejoice and to celebrate the fact that in Jesus we have eternally Emmanuel. May we be different people because of him. And may you use us to bring people who do not know and who have yet to experience the incredible power and reality of Emmanuel for themselves. Use us to bring them to him to your Son, and may this Christmas be the start of new life for even some that are here in this place, and may the greatest gift they receive this Christmas season be the gift that was already theirs, paid for by your Son with his life on the cross, the gift of Emmanuel constantly being with them through life. May that be true of all of us by the working of your spirit in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.